This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about smart credit card use. Blair, the do's and the don'ts. Easy, easy do's and don'ts to help you use your credit card, possibly better than you already are. So there's no doubt that credit cards are pretty common, pretty convenient, but a few missteps can easily turn a basic balance into a major financial burden. So debt help expert Blair Manton's going to share his credit card use best practices and easy tips to help keep your balance from becoming a debt problem. So I know, Blair, in your work, you've seen far more credit card bills than the average person. Where do you want to start today talking about credit card do's and don'ts? Well, you're completely right, Elaine, in that I can't think of maybe more than five estates in the thousands that I've seen where there hasn't been at least some credit card usage. You know, sometimes it's not the dominant factor, but, you know, it is the fact that credit cards are, you know, a basic component of most people's financial life, whether it's for convenience, whether it's, you know, to get some rewards. Uh, a lot of people do find themselves, you know, using credit cards quite a bit. And there's really nothing inherently wrong with using a credit card. In some situations, they're useful, they're convenient. As I said, sometimes there's some good rewards and perks that you know might seem more attractive than they actually are, and we're going to get to those. Um, but you really need to understand how credit works and what the rules are. And you know, when it comes to financial literacy, it's a skill like any other. It's something that you need to learn. You don't automatically just know everything, and you need some practice, sometimes making some mistakes along the way, some good sources of knowledge to really get you to the point where you are a savvy and well-informed consumer. And you know, that's what we're really hoping to do today. So I thought you know, off the top, I wanted to set the stage a little bit in terms of the types of credit cards that most people tend to, to gravitate towards, and then we can talk about some good do's and don'ts. So in terms of the major types of, of credit cards, you know, the typical credit card that you'll see most often, uh, it's called an unsecured credit card. Most of the time it's just called a typical credit card. And you always want to check the, the terms and conditions before you're taking out a new credit card. Understand are there fees, annual or otherwise? Uh, what are their transaction fees, ATM fees? Are there rewards and bonuses? And then probably the biggest cost that you're going to pay, unless you're paying the card off every month, which is a best practice, but anyway, uh, is what is the interest rate? So a typical credit card, you really want to understand all of those factors. Now, there's a couple other types of credit cards, again, just kind of setting the stage of what we're talking about here. Um, a prepaid credit card, it's sometimes called a reloadable or a pay-as-you-go card, and that's where you put you know, a deposit on the card, and you can basically use it until that balance goes away. You can get a prepaid card with no credit score or a low credit score, and it doesn't do anything to help your credit history, but it is good for convenience. And the final type of the three, so there's the standard credit card, there's a prepaid card, and then there's a type of card which is not really as well known, but it's called the secured credit card, and that's similar to a standard credit card. You know, it works everywhere, um, but you put an initial deposit down, similar to a prepaid card, but in this case, it actually does report on your credit bureau. It's going to help you rebuild your credit, so a lot of the time, a secured card is a great choice for people over a prepaid card. 
Okay. Now you kind of let it slip earlier that you think it's the, the best idea is to always pay off your credit card at the end of every month. So I know that you've got a whole list of really good do's and I bet that that's one of them. And then of course the dreaded don't do this with your credit card. Well, and that's the number one rule, Elaine. You can call it the golden rule of using a credit card is make sure you've got the cash to pay it off at the end of the month. Um, you know, there sometimes might be a good reason why even if you have the cash, you'll use the card, whether it's for convenience, maybe it's for safety, maybe there's some recurring purchases or online purchases. But the key thing to avoid this pylon of interest, which you'd be amazed how quickly your credit card balance can grow at 20 or even 30% interest, um, you just need to make sure you've got the money aside. So the best practice for a credit card is to make sure you're paying the balance in full uh, on a monthly basis. And if you do that, you're not going to be paying any interest charges. Um, and most credit cards typically have either a very low or a zero annual fee. Um, so if you really take the time ahead of time to make sure if you're using your credit card for a purchase that you do have the cash to pay it off, um, you know, that's far and away the number one do with a credit card. But even something to consider is if you do have the cash, sometimes there's a behavioral or psychological aspect of if you're actually parting with the cash, you might be a little bit more careful with your spending because there's the physical pain of opening up your wallet, of taking out the different colored bills. Oh my gosh, the brown bill is $100. My gosh, that's different than putting down, you know, a credit card where everything's a little bit, you know, nebulous. It's less tied to something tactile and physical. So it's not the case you use credit for everything. Always sometimes use cash makes good sense. But if you are going to use credit, make sure you've got the money to pay it off far and away. That's the number one tip. Number one tip. So I just want to throw this in at this point, Blair, that if, if there's a listener that already knows deep down inside that it's time to get some help with finances or your debt problem, I want to just reinforce, give Sands and Associates a call. Uh, the phone number 1-800-661-3030. You can set up that first appointment and get started. So can we talk about the do's and don'ts you can offer for dealing with a credit card balance? Yeah, I think just before we get, we get to there, Lane, I just wanted to touch a little bit on another don't here because I think this is a little bit of a, of a pitfall. Um, and sometimes people are thinking, you know, I'm going to use my credit card for all sorts of transactions, but there's three in particular that cause you to really incur charges really upfront. So be careful if you're taking any cash advances or credit card checks. Oftentimes there's a, a fee right off the top of those. Uh, be careful if you're doing a wire transfer or a money order. And then finally, and I would hope people aren't doing this, but if you're putting lottery tickets or other gaming transactions, on your credit card, be aware they're charged interest right away. So those types of transactions really want to flag for folks to, to be careful with those. Oh, oh boy, I didn't realize that that comes up right away. There's no, there's no grace period like there is with other purchases with your credit card. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly the point, Elaine. So if we go out, wow. you know, go to Hudson's Bay after work and buy, you know, a new blanket for the bed or something, I've got 21 days at least of interest-free grace period. I'm going to pay it off. It's fine. I paid no interest. But if I go out and go to the ATM before then and get the exact same amount of money to take to Hudson's Bay, but I took it from my credit card, I'm going to be charged the probably a minimum 20% interest on that from the day that I've took it out. There's no interest-free period. And I'm probably going to end up paying that interest for a couple months because by the time I get the bill, it's only going to have some interest on it. There's going to be some accumulating to the fall month. So it gets you into a cycle you don't want to be in. And I know we just sort of glossed over, didn't even touch yet on the benefits part that credit card companies can offer. Do we pay attention to that reward system or the benefits or should we just discount that altogether? 
Well, I think you want to be careful and understand that it's an enticement to get your business, but I've done the math, and in general, the best rewards programs, they're going to give you about 1% of what you spend back, whether it's cash back or airline points or something like that. Maybe you get it up to one and a quarter or one and a half percent. But if you're spending money to get the rewards points and you're not paying off the balance, your interest charges alone for one month are probably one and a half percent easy. If you carry it for two or three months, you very quickly eclipse any of the benefits you're going to get from that credit card. So I find the rewards, you want to be very careful about them. Again, there can be a good strategy, charge things on the card, pay it off every month, get the rewards points. But quite often, I find people build up a balance, they've got these rewards points, but then they've got an interest charge that well exceeds any value they might have gotten. That's fair enough. That's a really good point. Okay, so now let's talk about the credit card balance. What are some do's yeah. and don'ts around, around that? Well, I think the first one is just to be aware and be, and be proactive. You know, just keep your eyes open and keep track of your account balances, your purchases, and your payments. And you've got to treat all your accounts as important. So don't skip any payments. Don't regularly rotate. I'm going to skip this one this month and pay it the next month. Um, you need to understand any missed payments at all can impact your credit score, no matter how big or how small. Um, and sometimes you missing payments can actually trigger penalties, can trigger higher interest rates. So really make sure you're keeping on top of things and talk to your lender right away. Way. If you think you're not going to be able to make a payment as required, you know, we've seen in the last, you know, 19, 20 months, lenders have been very flexible as people have went through very tough times with the pandemic. Um, can't say that's always going to be the case, but it's definitely worthwhile to be proactive if you know you can't make a payment as scheduled. Now, I know the next thing we want to talk about are the fees or the fee structures. And boy, I find you know, that's part of that 18 pages of information you get when you get your credit card, isn't it? Well, and it's, it's so interesting, Elaine, too, because I've often said, you know, the harder something is pushed on you by the salesperson, the often the better it is for you and the worse it is for them. And the number one thing I tell people to watch out for on fees is balance protection insurance. I've never had a single client, and I deal with people where they've lost their job, they've gotten sick or something like that, where that insurance has actually paid out and done good, and they've gotten some value from it. I've had a ton of clients who, when I look at their bill, I'm like, do you realize you're paying 40 50 80 $100 some month for this balance protection insurance that probably won't pay out? Uh, and they just had no idea. It was just sold them as a very good idea, a good way to protect yourself. So be very careful on balance protection insurance. My advice is almost always to say no to it. Um, be aware you'll be charged a fee if you take a cash advance on your card. Sometimes it's nominal. Sometimes it's ATM fees plus a certain amount. Uh, be aware there could be over-limit fees. You know, if you're if your credit grantor thinks you know they're doing you a favor by allowing you to exceed your limit, they might also tack a 40 or $50 charge on it because you did exceed your limit. Um, and then finally, make sure if you're using your card out of country, you realize there's currency conversion, but there's often a charge an extra premium on top of that that can make it a little bit of a worse deal sometimes than going and exchanging your money. So be very aware of the fees. Oftentimes, the amount that credit card companies make from fees is very close or can exceed the amount they make from interest charges. And what do you tell the person who says, look, I pay that minimum payment box every time I get my credit card statement. I can't figure out why I can't get ahead on this thing. Like I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I say you're at the number one warning sign of someone who's going to have financial problems is if you're only able to make your minimum payments, you're trapped in a cycle of debt that could be, you know, even for $5,000 at 18%, that's almost 20 years to pay it off. And, you know, the balances can go up from there. So I'd say to that person, look at your credit card statement. It's not, it might not be as easy as you'd like to find it. But by law, there is a disclosure there that says if you only make the minimum payments, it's going to take you X number of years to get out of debt. Um, and if you really 
really want to educate yourself, if you look back at your cardholder agreement and look at how that minimum payment is calculated, I remember when I looked at it for my card and I was like, no, I must be reading this wrong. It's I'm going to pay the interest for the month, uh, any charges or fees for the month, and $10, literally $10. It didn't matter what my balance was. I was paying interest, fees, and $10 each month was going to bring down my balance if all I was doing was the minimum payment. So that's why it's the 20 or 40 or 100-year cycle is minimum payments contribute very, very little to actually reducing your balance. In my mind, they're designed to preserve as long as possible the amount of time you will be making those payments. So we just got a minute left, um, Blair, and I think this is so important why a licensed insolvency trustee like yourself, number one person to go see if you've got credit card debt issues. Well, that's absolutely right, Elaine. And a lot of folks I deal with, you know, they're determined they're going to get out of this under their own steam. They feel personal responsibility or they feel embarrassed to reach out for help. You know, the best thing I can say is everybody I meet with feel happy that they've at least had the conversation. They're allowed to get some questions answered. They're allowed to put some, you know, structure to something that seems a little bit out there. They don't know all the rules and responsibilities. It's a confidential one-on-one consultation. You can make some informed decisions. And we guarantee it's without judgment. It's with empathy. We're just real people trying to help real people in tough situations. Yeah, and you're not alone in this because this is this is an issue for folks, especially uh, during tough times or, or this crazy pandemic that we're all living through. So if you're ready to get a debt-free plan in place, book your free confidential debt consultation with a caring, and I mean it, caring Sands & Associates debt help expert. Visit sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm going to talk about seven facts. He's boiled it down to seven facts, folks, all about debt you probably didn't know. So if you were faced with a debt problem, would you know all your legal rights, options, and remedies? A lot of consumers, not obvious just how complex debt can be until facing the uncertainty of how to deal with it. So Blair's going to highlight the importance of seeking qualified support, sharing some facts about debt issues that maybe you don't know all about. We've talked before, Blair, about the uh, the SANS catchphrase, knowing is not owing. So can you start us off with some debt facts that really highlight this for folks and, and maybe they haven't heard before? Oh, certainly. I'm excited for today's um, segment as well, because I'm sure there's more than seven key things, but these are probably the top seven that I see people coming in consistently in consultations where, you know, we're really happy to educate, and, you know, the more that we can get the word out to others who might not even need to see us for a consultation, but just need to know this in their life, you know, that that's success to me. So one thing that I often get, get asked about is, you know, sometimes it's a family going through a very tough situation, and they think that their personal debts might turn into a family issue if they're not mm-hmm. able to pay all their debts off as they had planned or if they pass away. So essentially the question of can you inherit debt, we get tons of calls on that all the time, and sometimes it's after people have already taken some steps to say, well, I know I'm going to inherit this debt anyway, so I've liquidated this asset or that. Was that the right thing to do? And the first thing we're going to say out of the seven today is that relationships alone, family relationships, uh, they do not automatically create responsibility for debt. So a family does not inherit a personal liability for paying your debt just because they're related to you. Uh, If you have an unpaid debt when you pass on, your creditor can try to make a claim on your estate. So if there is, you know, um, some asset that you had when you passed on, yes, those assets have the right to be sold to pay debts, but 
if there's no assets in your estate, there's nobody else that can be held responsible for that. Now, the exception to this is if there is a co-signer or a co-borrower uh, joint type of an account, you know, that's where things could have some shared liability. But for the most part, if someone has some debt and they pass on, unless it was a jointly held debt when they were alive, it, there's no way that it suddenly becomes a joint debt when they had passed on. Okay. And that includes spouses too? Yeah, that's a good point to add there, Elaine. So yeah, it a lot of people think if you marry somebody, you marry their debt. And we've talked about this for a number of segments in the past, but it's completely false. You don't marry someone's debt. And it's not the case that if someone had a significant debt, you know, say a husband owes a huge student loan, the government can't suddenly come to the wife and say, well, now you're married. I need you to start paying this student loan. So the debts remain separate, even though you're married. Now, again, there's a, a difference. If you start getting joint debts together, you start borrowing things together. Of course, that's, you know, the obligation of both of you. But strictly speaking, each person's debts are their own debts even if they're married. And you mentioned it, you mentioned a, about a joint debt. Uh, I think it's always so important to talk about co-signing because often that's the first thing that folks suggest they do to help somebody in their family mm -hmm. or a close friend. And you are not a fan of that process. No, in uh, my book I wrote a few years ago, uh, there's a big page that says, when is it wise to co-sign a debt? Almost never. I've heard very few situations where it is wise. You know, maybe okay, it's a small student loan for the last semester of school. You know you've got the job already lined up. You'll be able to pay it back. You need your parents to co-sign. That was my example, and it worked out. But uh, for the most part, uh, when you co-sign a debt, most people don't think about the eventuality. If that original borrower can't pay it off, they're going to be on the hook for 100% of that debt. Um, you know, most people think if you're co-signing a debt, at most it's 50-50 liability or, you know, first they have to go and really chase that person down and make sure they can't get anything. No, if there's a default in that agreement, um, they can come to all of the borrowers for full payment. It's called joint and several liability. And there could be credit rating impacts on that as well. If the account's not getting paid on, on as according to plan and you're just the co-signer, it could be reporting on your credit as well. The payments aren't getting made. So I've seen situations where people have so regretted co-signing a debt because then when they need to deal with their debt situation, they're leaving the co-signer in a very tough financial situation. So I generally recommend against getting a co-signer for any debts or being a co-signer. I also recommend the exercise caution if you're getting a supplementary card on a credit card account. Really look at the cardholder agreement and make sure you're not signing on to be responsible for any previous balances or any purchases that you don't make. In some cases, you are signing on for both of those responsibilities. I want to throw in here, too, that if you already know that you need to take some action and you need to get some help uh, with to, to solve your debt issue, give Sands & Associates a call. The phone number, again, is 1-800-661-3030 or check the website sands-trustee.com. So, Blair, um, are there some further debt facts about what you can or what can and can't happen if you don't pay a debt that you want to include? Oh, for sure. There's a few here, Elaine, and the first one is one that can really, really impact someone in a serious way if they're not anticipating this. It's called the right of offset, and what this is in simple terms, it's the right of a bank or another financial institution to recover money owed to them for an outstanding debt, so to basically get their debt paid back by taking money you have on deposit with them or an affiliated bank to pay the debt. So what it typically means is that if you've got a credit card at, you know, pick a bank and you also have your daily banking relationship there, it might be the day after you've deposited your paycheck and you're expecting to pay the rent the following day. 
your account's been swept clean because you've got a delinquent account balance and the bank just got tired of saying, hey, you're late on this payment, so on and so forth. We're within our rights to go into your account and basically clean it out uh, if that's enough to satisfy the debt. So it can happen at the worst possible time uh, and your bank could withdraw all the money in the account and leave you literally with nothing and then your next payments, you know, your NSFs or your uh, regularly preauthorized payments, they might not be able to be funded and then you're dealing with NSF charges like for $50 a time. You can imagine insult to injury at that point. So the way that you deal with the right of offset is to not put yourself in that situation. So many banks, as you'll notice, if you look at their marketing, everything under one umbrella, you know, we can do everything under the sun and that gives them the ability if you're borrowing from them to come and take your assets without having to do anything. They can literally push a button within the bank and that's about it. If you separate your borrowing and your daily banking, so wherever you put your paycheck in, you just don't have any credit relationship with them, you've frustrated that right of offset forever. That bank that you owe debt from, they could never go to another institution and suddenly take your money. They would have to do a whole legal process. It would take months. You'd see it coming a mile away. So it's the best practice for everybody just to not borrow where you do your daily banking. Such a such a good piece of advice. Um, what about the time that a creditor has to collect their debt? Does that ever expire or does it just keep going on and on and on? Well, that's a big one too, Elaine, that a lot of people don't realize there is a time limit. There is a statute of limitations, so to speak. It's called the BC Limitation Act, and it limits the amount of time creditors have to take action to force you, which means to sue you, for a debt that's open. And in BC, it's as little as two years. So it changed a number of years ago. It used to be six years. If you owe somebody money, they can threaten to sue you, you know, for six years. It changed a number of years ago. It's now two years. And the way that it's measured is two years after the date the debt was incurred, the date the last payment against it was made, or the date the last written acknowledgement of the debt by the person who owes the money, including an email, was made. So if two years have passed and you have not made a payment on the debt, you've not acknowledged the debt in writing, and nobody has taken legal action against you, um, this debt can become uncollectible. And what that means is that you could never legally be forced to pay this debt. If they tried to take you to court, your defense would be one sentence and it would be irrefutable. You'd say, BC Limitations Act, it's beyond two years, therefore they've got no right to do this and you would win. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't owe the money anymore. So just because the limitation period has elapsed, it means they don't have the legal right to force you to pay the debt, but they can do other things to you. They can still call you. They can still harass you. They can still threaten you as much as the threats might be empty. They still might be made, and that can cause you some stress. Um, so the debt doesn't go away, but realistically, your risk towards the debt is significantly lower once the two-year limitation period has passed. So well, a couple things. You've got to be careful about making small payments because, you know, if you're 1.9 years into that limitation period and you make, you know, a $10 payment on that debt, you know, a good faith payment or whatever, you've now reset that clock back to zero and the two years starts again. And the second point here is to realize not all debts have limitation periods. Any amounts owing to the government, there's no limitation period for income tax or student loans or anything like that. So it is, and, you know, things like alimony or maintenance, no limitations on those, but your typical consumer debts, there is a standard two-year limitation period. Okay, that's really important, especially that whole if you've had any correspondence with the with the uh, with the with the uh, person who's who who you're owing. I think that's fascinating. Well, yeah, sometimes your best bet is just to go silent. You know, if you know you can't pay the debt, it's not going to help you to pay $10 a month. You're never going to hit the limitations period. And sometimes saying nothing means that you're not going to incriminate yourself or not going to reset that that clock. So sometimes that can be a good action. And we'll give you advice on that if that's your best course. 
Now, you've got a nice segment here about Canada Revenue, uh, their agency debt collection. Uh, how does that work? Because I bet that's a little bit different than others. Yeah, the key takeaway there that people might not be aware of is, you know, some people are aware, hey, you've got to be sued for a debt before, you know, you can really have an impact against you before your wages can be seized, before any assets can be taken from you. There needs to be a court action against you. You know, sometimes when people are made aware of that, they're like, okay, so when people are threatening, they can do something overnight. It just can't happen. The exception to that is Canada Revenue Agency. Because they are the government, uh, they don't have to go to court. They don't have to get an order. If you're delinquent on taxes, if you've been non-compliant, um, they can implement some pretty severe remedies just about overnight. Now, typically, it's not their first step. They're going to try to work with you, call you, you know, try to get you on board, or try to get you to work with a trustee to restructure the debt. Um, but if none of that works, they can do a wage or a bank account seizure very quickly. They can even place a lien on your personal property, start to seize assets from you. So with CRA, just be aware they can shortcut uh, other collection uh, avenues that other collectors would have to follow. And of course, at the end of the day, if you if you don't want to go or pay attention to all to any of those things that we've already talked about, and you just want to deal with your debt, and that that's when I come and see you, and and you've got some options for me. The best option that I always say people have never heard about, and hopefully more and more people are hearing about it, is the consumer proposal. So it allows you to consolidate your debts without borrowing, but also get those debts forgiven down to what you can actually afford. So quite often it's in the range of 30 to 50 cents in the dollar, maybe it's 25, 35, depending on the situation. But it can literally be somebody who owes $30,000 of debt with massive minimum payments, interest accumulating every month. It could be we reduce that down to, say, $9,000 of debt, you know, just under a third of the total total and they pay nothing extra on top of that. It's a payment they can afford based on their income and they've avoided the bankruptcy proceeding, avoided getting caught in the minimum payment traps for the next, you know, 15 or 20 years. So a consumer proposal is incredibly powerful. And it's something everyone needs to be aware of if you find yourself in a situation where you're just trapped making minimum payments and you know it's going to take you a very long time to pay off the debt. I also, if you're being hounded by creditors and collection agencies, a consumer proposal uh, would shut all of that down as well. Yep, dead in its tracks. As soon as you've signed, the trustee is appointed like a referee. You only deal with the trustee. You get protection from all of your creditors. That should be the number one reason that you would give Sands & Associates a call. As well, you can learn more about consumer proposals, debt consolidation, personal bankruptcy. Uh, you can explore all the different options if now is the time to take some action uh, to, to look after your debt situation. You can get your debt consultation with Sands & Associates easily. Appointments are available in person or remotely. Visit their website, uh, sands-trustee.com and give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents here on CKNW. We're talking about bankruptcy. It's a hard topic, an important one, though, to really understand the truth around bankruptcy and the personal bankruptcy process in British Columbia. So if you're thinking about declaring bankruptcy, Blair Manton's going to explain how the process works and what you should know before you file. And of course, you are going to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. That's the way you have to do it in this province, uh, if that's your next step. So let's talk about that, Blair. Uh, can you really just explain what it means to file for personal bankruptcy and and is it as scary as people think it is or have as much punch as that word does for folks 
In general, bankruptcy is nowhere near as bad as people think. And I've got a, you know, a video on our YouTube channel that's been up there for probably eight years now or so. It still gets a lot of traffic. And the title on it is bankruptcy is not as bad as you think. So you know that's essentially my contention going into this. is Whatever assumptions you have, it's probably going to be less severe. But all that being said, I know bankruptcy is a very scary word. None of us set out with the goal of going through a bankruptcy. Um, you know, It's not a successful point in someone's life typically, um, but it can be a huge relief. And in hindsight, I've had so many clients tell me, you know, in hindsight, this is probably the best thing I ever did because it allowed me to finally click stop, um, you know, the tough situation I was in, um, you know, all the stress, all the obligations that I couldn't meet, um, go through a formal restructuring where I was respected. I had the benefit of Canadian law to help me re reorganize myself and start again. And, you know, now I'm successful again. So I've had people phone me. They've started businesses, incredibly successful, um, you know, multiple real estate holdings. I had one gentleman, this is just about a month ago or so, and he phoned me from Prince George and he was saying, you know, I worked with you guys years ago. I went through a bankruptcy. I paid attention to all the counseling sessions. And he said, you know what, Blair, now when I look out the block, I'm looking at the houses that I own. He said, you know, I own that one. I own this one. I'm renting this one to students, this one to, to workers. I'm like, wow. So you came out of this, you started saving money and, you know, you, right timing is important because he was able to buy things at a good price before they escalated. But, you know, without him having done that bankruptcy, he would not have been able to move forward to be as successful as he is today. Um, so what it wow. Wow, what a wonderful go, story. Yeah. Well, it just makes my day. And those are the, the happiest calls that I get. You know, it's often when someone is just taking that next step and they might need to confirm a little piece of information from me. Uh, but it just, you know, fills me up with joy just to know, okay, you know, I knew this person when they needed help and they were in a tough situation and now they're just that much more successful. And a lot of these folks, you know, they want to help others. So all of our advertising, it's real clients, real stories, you know, not scripted. This is their actual experience. So it really can be a life changing thing. It sounds negative. Um, but you know, the means to the end, you know, the end here is that you're going to end up with no debt uh, moving forward and a chance to start again. Uh, so what a bankruptcy does is it allows you to eliminate all of your debt, uh, working under the supervision of a licensed insolvency trustee. And when I say all of your debt, it's debts that could include things like general consumer and business debt. So credit cards, lines of credit, overdraft, payday loans, everything along those lines. Um, secure debts if you don't want to continue with the obligation. And what that means is if you have a car loan where you owe a whole lot more than what the car is worth and you don't want to continue with it, you would just let that go as part of a bankruptcy. Um, similar, we haven't seen this much in recent years, but I know we'll see this again in the future. If real estate values fall and someone says, you know, I owe a million dollars on my home that I might sell for 800,000, um, you know, what's going to happen to that $200,000 shortfall? Well, in a bankruptcy proceeding, all of that could be dealt with and eliminated. Um, in some cases, that's business debt. So you know, it might be a director of a corporation or somebody um, just running a sole proprietorship, or it could have personally guaranteed some business debt, but it could be you know, a tax debt from the business. It could be a lease from a business. Any of those types of obligations um, can be discharged by filing a personal bankruptcy. What's important for people to know too, uh, is that the option, the decision to file for bankruptcy, it's yours and yours alone. So nobody gets forced into bankruptcy. See, it's theoretically theoretically possible. I've never seen it in 15 years of practice. Um, generally, this is something that you decide. You decide you need the relief of the legislation, and there's no court hearing where you need to justify yourself. There's no permission required from your creditors. You have the right to file a bankruptcy at any point if you find yourself insolvent, which means you're unable to pay your debts, and you need the relief and protection of Canadian law.
And I want to mention, if you're, if, if Blair's already been talking about your situation or you've been thinking along these lines, give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, for that first sit-down to, to see if this is the best step forward for you. They have 19 offices. I think it's 19 offices now, right, Blair? All over Oh, Bush more County. than that. We're at about 25. We're all over the province now. 25. Oh, I'm very mm -hmm. sorry. 25 That's offices okay. all over the province. And the website is sands-trustee.com. So uh, can we talk about the key steps to declaring bankruptcy in, in Canada? Yeah, you know, it's it's quite a big misconception. People think bankruptcy takes seven years. It's an incredible ordeal to go through. In practice, it's pretty brief and straightforward in most cases. In about 80% of cases, bankruptcy from the day that it starts to the day that it's finished and you move on being discharged from bankruptcy can be as short as just nine months. So it's not anywhere close to the six or seven years that most people think, literally nine months for 80% of people. Uh, what are the main steps? Well, step one is it all comes back to the free consultation with a licensed insolvency trustee. So you're going to meet with us confidentially. It might be over video, it might be telephone in our offices across the province whatever works on your terms, we're going to do that. We're going to talk about all of the options that you have. You know, bankruptcy is typically the last resort if nothing else works. So there's certainly situations where bankruptcy makes perfect sense. There's also situations where someone might think bankruptcy is the right option. And then when we show them, well, here's a consumer proposal, you might end up paying something similar, uh, but you're this much more in control, a little bit better on your credit. The person might make the choice to take that option. So we don't go into anything with a foregone conclusion that bankruptcy is inevitable. But if it is the right option during the first consultation, we're going to explore all of those things and let you know exactly what filing a bankruptcy would entail. Uh, step two is after that first meeting, you'd prepare an information form. So we'd show you here's the form that you fill out either online, in person, or, or by print. Um, and then you give us all the information so we can prepare the official bankruptcy documents. And then our step three is we sign those documents. Once we've signed those documents, the bankruptcy starts, the nine-month counter is underway, and you cease having any responsibility to your creditors at all. There's no no payments required of you. They can't call you, harass you, take you to court. If anything's being seized from you, that has to stop. If your wages or benefits are being seized, a trustee is going to put a stop to that right away. And then you focus on completing the duties of the bankruptcy and achieving that discharge, which puts the debt behind you. And there are some very specific advantages to declaring bankruptcy or choosing bankruptcy over a consumer proposal. For, this, for the purposes of this segment, can we talk about what those are? Yeah, there's definitely bank uh, advantages to bankruptcies versus other options. And in some cases, they can be better than a consumer proposal. Um, but in general, a proposal and a bankruptcy give you a whole lot of very similar advantages. And they're both quite private processes. So when you file the bankruptcy, a lot of people think, and I thought this too before I was a trustee, well, I've seen those bankruptcy sections in the newspaper. It must mean that every bankruptcy is in the newspaper. That's not the case at all. It's about 1% of bankruptcies have to be in the newspaper. It's for a single day. And you know, there's maybe a few of those a year we do here at Sands, and we do thousands of, of other client work here. So I sometimes joke, you know, if every bankruptcy had to be in the newspaper, there would be nothing else there because we're talking thousands of names every single month. It's just in the province of BC. So it's generally a very private process. Your creditors have to be aware, the trustee is aware, but that's often where it ends. You know, we encourage everybody to be open and transparent with the people that they care about and that 
care about them and get support. But is it possible for a husband or a wife to file a bankruptcy and the other spouse not knowing? It's possible, for sure. The only the person that's directly related to the proceeding generally needs to know about it. Um, in terms of fees, um, generally a bankruptcy is going to be the cheapest way for you to deal with a debt problem, you know, short of just not paying anything and running from the debt, which is not a long-term solution, but in some cases that's what someone needs to do for a period of time. Uh, but most bankruptcies, again, inside of nine months, if your income is below a certain level of a low-income guideline, it's around $2,400 a month take-home pay uh, for the most recent year, you pay just a single all-inclusive cost of bankruptcy, which is usually around $2,300. Uh, it's usually split over the nine-month period, so about, you know, between $250, $280-ish per month over that period of time. And that's in lieu of you making any payments at all to creditors. So instead of paying the creditors a lot of money each month that might go on forever, you pay a reduced amount to the trustee. It's over in nine months. And the last point is that the bankruptcy actually can protect your assets. So you might be subject to, you know, wage seizures, asset seizures, as soon as you file a bankruptcy, all that grinds to a halt. You get the space um, and the time that you need to restructure under the supervision of the trustee. And 10 minutes is hardly enough time to really talk about bankruptcy and all the ins and outs, especially how it pertains to you personally. So it's so important to have a sit down with somebody who knows. And in this business, it's Sands and Associates, Licensed Insolvency Trustee Blair Manton. They have 25 offices throughout British Columbia. Their phone number is 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. So this is interesting. We're going to talk about government debt. Everything from those CERB overpayments, which is kind of a new thing in the last couple of years, to outstanding tax bills. So there's some options for relief if you're dealing with government debt that you just can't afford, whether it's those CERB payments or tax balances, student loans, lots of options to consolidate, cut, and even fully forgive government debts that you may be struggling with right now. And Blair is going to explain what we can do about government debt. Blair, you and your team at Sands & Associates, I'm pretty sure work every day with folks who are looking for solutions. And let's talk about some of the different types of government debts that you help people manage because it, it's really, it's really a large umbrella that those, that those options yeah. are under. Yeah, it really is, Elaine. It's something that's so great when you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee is the power of a trustee is based in federal legislation and it's pretty broad and all-encompassing. So, you know, you might have heard, oh, there's nothing you can do about government debt. That's false. You know, if you owe the government money, you just need to pay them. You can't get any relief from it. That's false. You have options that you can do, you can use to deal with government debt. And just like with everything we talk about on this show, it's about being informed. It's about knowing what your options are. And, you know, ideally, you never need to resort to using these types of things. But probably there's someone in your life at some point that might face a crisis with government debt. And it's great to know, you know, the rules of the game, what you can potentially do, and what you need to be aware of. So as a licensed insolvency trustee, we're actually the only professionals in Canada that can eliminate and reduce government debt. So there's no other professional that can help you access the remedies that are available if you owe the government money and aren't able to pay them in full to basically start to move forward. Uh, licensed insolvency tr trustees can help people manage virtually all types of government debt. So that includes, and not limited to these, but these are the main ones, um, tax debt. And that could be a number of different areas, something as simple as personal income taxes. It could be GST debt from your business. And regardless of whether you've even 
collected the GST, if the government says that you should have been collecting GST, they can assess you a balance that's owing. And that could be something, you know, they'll be very aggressive to collect. Uh, payroll and source deduction remittances. So if you have a business paying your employees, if you're not remitting that money to government, that can be a very significant debt very quickly. And that along with GST, I often call them the worst of the worst debts. And it's not that I'm making any moral judgments. It's that the government views those as what's called trust amounts, which means you're supposed to hold the money in trust. When a customer pays you money with, pays you an invoice with GST, you're supposed to hold that GST in trust. When you pay your employees their wages, you're supposed to hold their tax remittances in trust and then give it to the government. And if you don't do that, if you end up having a balance owing, they can collect very aggressively on those balances. But again, with many things, as we're going to talk about in this segment, there is hope and a trustee can help you deal with those types of debts. Um, other types of government debts, things like student loans, um, ICBC debt, it might be for a claim, uh, for motor vehicle indebtedness, an auto plan, auto plan payment, um, and other things, you know, local to BC MSP premiums, even though they haven't been charged for a few years, if you have a previous balance, that's still due and payable. Um, and that's something a trustee can help you with. And sometimes there's some overpayments of benefits, whether it might be employment insurance, um, CERB, or any of those recovery benefits, a trustee can help you deal with those debts as well. I want to throw in at this moment that if Blair's already described your situation, you need to give them a call and it's 1-800-661-3030 just to sit down and talk about the situation and see if it's something that they can help you with or what steps you might want to take or maybe you don't know to take yet or check out their website, sands-trustee.com. So next question, what should someone do or not do if they find themselves facing this type of situation, Blair? Well, the worst thing you can do if you owe the government money or think that you might is put your head in the sand and ignore the issue. Uh, if you think, you know, I'm just not going to not file my tax return and CRA is not going to know that I owe them money, uh, that's a very bad strategy. Um, CRA generally is going to have more information than you can imagine. Um, they probably have a good sense of what you've earned and what you owe. And what CRA will do if you're delinquent in filing your tax returns long enough, um, they view filing your taxes as a civic obligation of everybody in Canada. You know, they understand if you can't pay, but they're less understanding if someone just doesn't file. So a couple things they'll often do. Uh, one is they might place a hold or a freeze on your bank account where suddenly you try to withdraw some money, you pay the rent or a pre-authorized debit and nothing is moving in your account. And you phone the bank and they say, yeah, CRA has placed a hold on that account. That definitely gets your attention. Uh, another thing they can do, and this is very severe, it's called making an arbitrary assessment. So they often do this with folks that are self-employed, uh, maybe doing a whole lot of cash based businesses and CRA hasn't received a tax return from them, they are going to just calculate their version of the truth and say, well, this is what we think you earned. We looked at your bank account, summoned all those records, and they can get all this stuff. They don't generally allow you any deductions and just put a huge amount for your income. And then they basically calculate a tax amount owing based on that. So you definitely want to avoid having an arbitrary assessment. You can go back and file the tax returns, but then you're trying to disprove something that CRA has already put out there, which is a whole lot more difficult than just filing the truth the first time around. Uh, there's no statute of limitations on government debt. So in some consumer debts, we talk about this in other segments, you know, if they haven't sued you in the period of two years, they can never sue you. You don't need to be too, too worried about it. There's no statute of limitations on government debt. So if you owe the government money, there's no waiting it out. There's no hoping that it goes away uh, one way or another. If they have the means to collect, they're likely to pursue that. 
Uh, so number one thing is do not ignore the problem and do not just stop filing tax returns. Uh, another really important thing not to do is don't transfer assets. So if you think you can try to protect assets, you owe some money, you've got some assets that could be used to pay those, those debts, but you want to keep them safe and put them into a, you know, a friend or a family member or someone else's name, uh, most of those actions are just going to end up making the problem worse. Um, creditors are going to be able to pursue that transfer, especially the government. I've seen CRA say, okay, this real estate was transferred to this person. Okay, we're now going to pursue that person that you transferred the asset to for the full amount of the debt. So now you've brought somebody into this problem who wasn't there before. And in many cases, some of the assets that you think you have to move to protect, you don't actually have to do anything with them because if you just sought the help of a trustee, you can get protection through either a proposal or a bankruptcy. So you don't need to necessarily move anything around if you understand what's in jeopardy versus what is fully protected. And that's how, why it's so important to give you a call, Sands and Associates a call, to see what is what. I think uh, because you will be able to outline what happens uh, if government debt is left unpaid. And it's a pretty exhaustive list. We've got a few minutes left in this segment, but I think they're important, important mm -hmm. pieces for folks to realize. Yeah, the way I summarize it, Elaine, is not all debt is created equal, and government debt is certainly the least equal of all. They've got more power than anybody else to do do things to you if you owe them money. So just going through, you know, roughly the laundry list of what they can do, um, interest and penalties. For sure, if you owe the government money, you can plan on interest and penalties being added to that balance and those things compound on a daily basis. Uh, one thing you can do on that is there's often late filing or non-filing penalties for your tax returns. So just get the returns filed in and you can often mitigate some of those penalties that are being charged. Um, oftentimes, if you owe the government money, they're going to seize your future refunds or benefits. So they might keep your future tax refunds, might keep your GST credits. Um, if you owe for a SERB debt, they might keep up to 50% of your EI benefits. If you need to collect EI and you owe for serve, you might only get 50 cents on the dollar of what you're entitled to, which obviously that can be can result in you not being able to make ends meet. Uh, we talked a little bit about a bank account freeze or an asset seizure. Uh, one of the more powerful things which we talk often about is wage garnishment. So the government can seize, you know, typically 30%, but up to 100% of your income if things go unpaid for a significant amount of time. Uh, the important thing to know here is a trustee can stop all of these things from happening, or if they've already happened, put a stop to them in progress. So you just have to reach out for help. If you know you owe the government money, many options to, to take. But if you don't get anything to protect you, the government can take some pretty significant actions against you. Being able to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee could be the perfect solution for your situation. And there at Sands and Associates, their number is 1-800-661-3030. It's toll free. It's all they have offices all over British Columbia. And you can check out their website as well. And that's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.